You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we start, I want to thank all of the Weird Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusilo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jake Edel, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode, Uh, It is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show. We thought you might like to know that October is National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Yes, that's a heavy way to start a podcast, but... These are the topics that we have to discuss because we have to start talking about stigmas. And one of them surrounds miscarriages. And I've experienced this personally with my wife over the last few months as we have lost five pregnancies uh, since December. So it's a very personal topic that I wanted to discuss today. And my guest is Emma Ping of Sailor's Grace Ministries and Jennifer Kitzmiller of the Indianapolis Arts Chorale. And we're going to talk about why there is a stigma. Why, when people experience miscarriages, do they feel shame? Why do they keep pregnancies quiet? Let's talk about it and have a real conversation and see if we can find a better way to heal from this grief. Stay tuned here on The Chris Spangle Show. Emma Ping of Sailor Grace's Ministry, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Jennifer Kitzmiller of the Indianapolis Arts Choral, thanks for being here. All right. Well, I have not talked about this on the show, um, but I've posted about it. My my wife and I have uh, been through five miscarriages since we got married in uh, December, and it's a very tough thing to go through. And I'm sure many of uh, the people listening who have, have been through it as well, there's tons of emotions. You go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Uh, and, you know... One reason I wanted to do this show and uh, one reason we talked about it was because of the idea that 
Well, let's just not announce our pregnancy in case something happens. And then if something happens, nobody will ever know. And talking about our struggle with uh, miscarriages has been something that has actually been so beneficial for us as a couple because you, A, celebrate the best thing to happen to you and then one of the worst things with the friends and family that love you the most. And you have a ton of questions and emotions and other people who have been through it reach out. Uh, and my my good longtime friend, Jennifer Kitzmiller, reached out and said, thank you so much for sharing this. I'm putting on this event. And I said, hey, would you like to come on the show? And she has invited Emma Ping on to, um, of Say Let's Grace's Ministry, who's been through something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm going to start with Emma. Why do you think there is, I mean, you're both women. I'm not. Um, so I, I, I understand it's a lot different. I, I suffered with someone who, who was suffering, uh, these past few months. Um, so it's definitely a lot different for me, but you know, this is really to the both of you. Why do you think there is this notion that let's keep the pregnancy secret. Let's not talk about our miscarriages as if this is something that we should be ashamed of Mm -hmm. and keep quiet. What? How how do how do we get to that point? And uh, do you? I, I'm guessing if you're on this podcast, Emma, and started an organization, <laughs> you're not of the same mindset that we ought to keep these things quiet. Right. Yeah. And I mean, for me, because we've had experienced two losses. We experienced an early six week loss, and then we experienced um, a stillbirth at 36, almost 37 weeks. So. Um, we've kind of lived on both ends of that spectrum. And when we had our first loss, I remember telling my husband, like, what do we tell people? Like, do we say anything? Are we allowed to say anything? Um, because nobody knew we were pregnant. <laughs> so because we were only at six weeks and we did end up telling um, a few people or we told our close family, um, but it wasn't until several months later that we even said anything like publicly that we had experienced this. And I think it's because um, we just as a society as a whole, don't really know what to do with grief and especially this type of loss um, because you can't see it. It's just mom and dad who even know that this, this life has existed. And then to tell people, Oh, well, we lost the baby. They're like, they don't know what to do with like there's like, oh i'm sorry and that's that's kind of it so i think then that puts people in a place of well that was super awkward so i'm just not going to say anything because people don't want to talk about it um and so that's kind of been one of our missions is that we are going to talk about it because it does when you don't talk about it it does it brings so much shame and what did i do wrong to to the topic and it makes it that much harder jennifer I I feel like that's kind of what I've seen in your story. Um, mm-hmm. It's just amazing how much we hold inside. I mean, I'm a school teacher and I look at my students, middle school and high school and all the things that they encounter. And I go, you're so much better when you can let it out, talk it out, let mm-hmm. someone in to help you, guide you, um, share stories with you. And that's not any different as an adult. But when we get to be an adult, we feel like we have to have everything put together all the time. And, and um, we don't. The reality is we don't. And this is one of those things that affects other aspects of your life or your families or your friends. And if you can't let it out, 
what are you going to do with it? Implode or um, hide it and, and someday it'll trickle out? Like there's so many negative potentials there. Um, and I think the vulnerability of just saying this is what it is for me right now and this is what it is for my family life right now is a big uh goal i think that we need to have as adults i think it's also a little bit of social media too like people don't want to be the performative facebook friend that's always like posting for sympathy right we all have that person but then you know people people kind of don't have the you know they don't know like i just put everything out online and have for 20 years so like i'm i you know i have the words and and i'm not worried about all the well did you get the covid shot comments that doesn't bother me um, but, um, that's a new thing. Like anybody dies. Well, did they get the jab? Um, yeah. and that's, you know, and you also have to kind of be prepared if you're going to talk openly about it, like all the helpful suggestions from well-meaning people who are asking you about the thing that you've already taught, tried or talked to a doctor about or, mm-hmm. right. So I think having that conversation in public, people kind of don't want to go and post about it online or even don't really have the words to kind of talk with their friends and family in person because we, mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right, Emma, we're very uncomfortable with being uncomfortable yes. with grief in general. I think that has been something that we've seen up close and personal the last couple of years is people just don't know how to handle death uh, mm-hmm. or the concept of, of death as a society and it and it's... You know, this is one of the most personal losses that a person can have, but like every, almost everybody's had like a grandparent pass or they have had like a family member pass. And I think you nailed it, Emma. Like people can't really relate, so they don't really mm-hmm. know what to say. Yeah. So go, go ahead. I'm going to jump in. Yeah, I'm please. Jennifer. If we actually though like if we get to a place where our society can share then we're not as alone because there are so many more people that can relate than we even realize and like when when emma shared her story and it impacted me like it was eye-opening how many people on my social media friends list this has happened to that they were also willing to share it just felt like it multiplied but was it really multiplying or were we just willing to say something and that's a difference when you started sharing your story, story Emma, how many people started multiplying? Because we've seen that in our life. Like, people I've been friends with for years since high school, like, this has happened three times to us. Or, the, you know, it's amazing mm-hmm. how people just kind of, you wouldn't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, people started coming out of the woodwork to to share their story and their experience. And it might not have been as late of a loss as we had experienced um, at that time, but it's still amazing how many people have this as a part of their story. And I've had the opportunity to share um, with some different groups that support us, um, who support Sailor's Grace. And I shared with a group of older women and it was, I would say probably about half the room talked to me after I was able to, to share our story. And they said that was me, but I couldn't talk about it. I was just told to go home and forget about it, that it never happened. And so I think for a long time we haven't shared. And now these people are hearing, oh, there are people sharing about it. So now I feel safe to be able to share to my story and my experience. So, I mean, it's not even just family and friends. It's people that we're just running into as we share our story um, that just say, yeah, that's that's me, too. So 
talking to Jennifer Kitzmiller of the Indianapolis Arts Choral and Emma Ping of Sailor's Grace Ministries, and we were talking about miscarriages. Not usually your uh, your your happy go to conversation, but that's why we're having the the tough conversation today. And October is uh, National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month, uh, declared by President Reagan in October 1988. And uh, the Indianapolis Arts Choral is putting on an event uh, that... Well, why don't you describe it, Jennifer? Tell us a little bit about the event that you're putting on called Break the Silence, Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness. Sure. So the Indianapolis Arts Chorale is the longest running chamber orchestra in the city of Indianapolis. Um, We would have celebrated our 50th year in the pandemic, but everything was shut down. So we're kind of celebrating a little late. Uh, This event is actually our first concert back in business. Um, And it's been an idea that I had kind of pitched to Emma as a could this be something we could sing for uh, back in 2019? So I've been sitting on it for a while through this pandemic, waiting for for things to be allowed to be out in the open again. Um, but it's just a concert in some capacity. For us, it's it's music that we have grown to rehearse and, and really love from the get-go. It's just beautiful stuff. But we're dedicating it or we're creating a space that's dedicated to an audience that has experienced this type of loss. So um, we're performing Kim Andre Arneson's uh, Requiem for Solace. It's a eight movement work um, with some Latin texts and some English texts and things like that. But the, it goes through the gamut of emotions. It goes through, you know, longing and hope and anger and despair. It goes through all of that, just like any good Requiem and music would do. Um, but it's not dedicated to anybody. The, the composer notes just say it's dedicated to pretty much no one or, and therefore everyone. So in this case, there's some really beautiful moments that uh, we're going to make connections with stories and sharing from, from folks like Emma and kind of dedicate it and and hone in on this topic and make it hopefully a safe space to sit and listen, grieve, light a candle, um, come up and read a name or write a name down. If, if reading is, is not someone's passion. Um, and just just sit with it. Uh, we're trying to partner with a few other nonprofits that deal with this type of loss in some capacity, whether they've been impacted by it or whether they have um, resources for someone who's been impacted by it, and just create a, a little bit of an education spotlight that this is out there and these organizations exist. So it's it's trying to bring together a few different things around the premise of a concert, a choir concert. And you've done this in the past, correct? This is not the first one? Choir concerts in general? Oh, oh, so this is the first one for awareness around infant loss? Oh, yeah. This is the first one for this type of topic. Um, I think in our history, we've done concerts centered around organizational outreach or community outreach of different kinds. Um, But the history is varied. And oftentimes, choral and just general music organizations, they just pick music that they love or pick music that hasn't been done recently and just perform. So you're always talking about the demographic that is also a musician or also appreciates music. But this is a little different. We're hoping we'll have folks that love us as an organization and would come to a concert anyway, no matter what we're singing, um, as well as folks that just love music in general. But now we're also trying to find a specific audience that we're trying to, to create this space for. It's a little bit different than what we've done in the past, especially in the recent past, but it's kind of an exciting passion project so far. 
so Emma, when I uh, when Jennifer sent me the note inviting us to the event, uh, uh, we're out of town, so unfortunately we can't go. But my wife's reaction was like, Ugh. "Now, obviously, it's very you know we're <laughs> we're two weeks out from our last miscarriage, so it's very um, soon." But what would you say to somebody that is hearing? her describe this event that has that reaction of, uh, uh, go ahead. Like what, what, you know, in- encourage them to come or what do you think that they might experience? Um, you know, her, her, her issue was, I don't want to cry the whole time. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. And I totally, I totally get that because I have been there. Um, I remember getting our first invitation to, um, it was, the. I think it was actually a pregnancy and infant loss awareness month, like remembrance ceremony at the hospital that we delivered at. And I remember getting that invitation in the mail and having that exact same reaction. Like, I don't know if I want to go stand with a bunch of strangers and kind of like air all this emotion out that I really don't even want to show to people that I know. So why would I do that with strangers? Um, But I have found in my experience that um, getting over kind of that, that hump, if you will, of um, anxiety and anticipation of what it could be, and um, kind of leaning into whatever it is, um, whether it's a concert or a, a remembrance ceremony where you just go and light a candle. Or for me, that first one was even just going to a support group to talk to other parents who had experienced this type of loss. Um, but just getting getting over and through that initial anxiety and just showing up, um, whether you participate or not, you could sit in the back and just observe. Uh, it's, it's helpful to be able to even just see that there are other people out there who are walking that same journey as you um, and that there are other people who are who want to be supportive of you in your journey, um, whether they've experienced that or not. Because I think um, when you do experience this type of loss, it is extremely isolating. You feel like you are the only person in the world who has ever experienced this and nobody could possibly understand. But when you do start exploring those, um, those opportunities like this concert, you see that there is, there's a whole community of people who have been there who want to be able to help hold you up on this journey and want to help walk that path with you because they know what it's like and they know those emotions that you're feeling, um, two weeks out and two months out and even two years out, we're four years into our journey. And there are still things that surprise me um, about things that just hit me like I didn't think they would hit me. So it's, it's really, it is, it's a lifelong journey, but being able to have those spaces um, to um, receive support and to um, maybe let out some of those emotions that you didn't want to let out. Um, are, it's it's very helpful and it's very healing. So I'm I would encourage anyone who has been there and who's maybe thinking, I don't know if that's for me. Just give it a shot, and it might not be for you, and that's fine too. Um, I don't think you know what's helpful to you until you until you do try things, and that that was my experience as well. So, so take us back and tell us a little bit about your story. Um, mm-hmm. Just. I, I guess start at the beginning and then we'll talk about, 
you know, the healing process after that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said earlier, we had experienced a six week loss. Um, oh, it was after our second child. So I have seven children total. Um, so all of our kids are about 18 months apart. Um, so we had our oldest two boys and then we experienced our miscarriage and, um, then we had two children after that. And so Sayla was our fifth baby and she was a complete surprise from the very beginning. (laughs) We were not, um, trying to, to get pregnant, and so my husband, my my uh, wife is the oldest of eleven. Every eighteen months, as well. Yep. I, I don't know why you were surprised. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We had it figured out by then, but um, yeah, I remember texting my husband at work, and he said, "I just laid my head on my desk for so long that people asked me, are you okay?'" <laughs> like we we were living in his parents' rental um, because we were in between houses. We were trying to sell our house and trying to. Um, keep a house staged with children is just impossible. So we were just like, I don't know what we're going to do. So we went through our entire pregnancy. It was, I mean, it was a perfect pregnancy. There were no concerns. Um, I, everything was completely normal. I had just had, I think my 36 week appointment, we scheduled out the rest of my appointments. We um, even had the induction on the calendar. So we were two weeks away from um, our induction. And, and may I ask for those of us who don't know how many weeks is a, a pregnancy? What's what's kind of the nine month point in weeks? Uh, 40 weeks. Okay. So far. Yeah. Along. So I was at 36 weeks and five days. And the, the day before I remember waking up and thinking, I just don't feel as pregnant as I did yesterday. When I thought that's that's stupid. Like you can't think about that. So I just went to work and, um, I work for a church and so it was a Sunday. And so we were busy because I work as a children's ministry director. So I'm on my feet the entire Sunday morning, chasing kids around. It was an insane Sunday anyway. Um, and so I never felt Salem move during the day because I was so busy. Um, so I didn't think much about it. And, then I remember that night thinking like, she's usually pretty busy at night, but she's not tonight. And so um, I remember like just pacing the house and trying to think of anything and just trying to talk myself out of there being anything wrong. Um, so I woke up the next morning and they always tell you, if you don't feel the baby move, go drink orange juice or something crazy like that. And we didn't have any. So I made myself a plate of chocolate chip waffles and drowned them in syrup. And <laughs> there was like, I still didn't feel anything. So I call, I text my husband. He was working for 911 at the time. And I told him, I said, I, I just feel like something might be wrong. And this was, I think, two days before school started. No, it was a day before school started for our kids. Um, so I dropped my kids off and I called the, the doctor's office and told them that um, I hadn't felt her move. And I just wanted to come in and kind of get my mind put at ease because we were so close. Surely she's just laying funny or, um, and at the, the worst, I thought, we'll just have a baby today. Well, she'll get here early. So I went in and um, we had a non-stress test just to see um, if they could find her heartbeat or if she was in distress of some sort. And I walked in and the tech was like, hey, I remember you from a previous pregnancy. So I'm like, yeah, I've been here several times before. This is number five. So you probably do. <laughs> so <laughs> We sat down and she couldn't find the heartbeat right away. And she kind of was playing with the monitor and we heard 
a faint heartbeat, but that was my heartbeat. Um, and then she tried to play it off as, well, I'm really new at this. So let me go get somebody who's better. And I'm thinking in my head, you just told me that you remembered me from a previous pregnancy. And this is number five. So I think you're lying to me. <laughs> so she brings somebody else in and she couldn't find the heartbeat. And they tried the Doppler and then they ended up taking us over for an ultrasound. So they thought, well, maybe we can find it there. And I just remember the ultrasound tech basically running into the room. Um, and the fat, it was the fastest ultrasound they had ever set me up for. And they threw that jelly on there and they put the, the wand on. And my husband says, I mean, at five kids, you know what you're looking for and you know what you should see on the screen. And he said, they flipped on the blood flow and there was nothing. And he said, I knew then that, that she was gone. And, um, so they told us and they had to do another ultrasound after the doctor came in because the tech could not tell them that they can't di make a diagnosis or anything. Um, so my doctor came in and she said, I'm just doing this because I have to confirm what they think they saw. And, um, they, they did confirm that there was no heartbeat and they told us that we would have to deliver her that day, which that thought had not even crossed my mind. Like how in the world, like this baby's full term, it's got it. She, she has to be delivered in some way. And so we talked about our options, um, about what we would need to do next. We talked about a C-section, but my doctor kind of discouraged me from doing that because she said, you know, that's going to be a lot more physical healing on top of what you're going to have to walk through after this. So we um, went immediately upstairs. We were at Community Hospital North. So we were at the doctor's office there. They took us right upstairs, um, got us a room, and we started an induction process to deliver Sayla, who, I mean, at the time we didn't know if she was a boy or a girl. So we found out in that ultrasound that she was a girl. Um, so just going through all of those emotions, and I just remember sitting on the bed for a really long time, <laughs> just like, I, I didn't want to start the process. And then I finally looked at my husband and said, we probably should get this show on the road. And so at six 30 that evening, we delivered her and she was beautiful and she was perfect. And you couldn't tell that there was a thing wrong. Um, and they, once she was born, they were able to determine that she'd had the cord wrapped around her neck um, three times. And they also found a quarter size uh, not in her cord that was really tight. So um, a total freak accident, nothing that we could have done to prevent it. Um, and so then after that, it was just the process of deciding what to do next. Yeah. So. A couple things ring true based on, you know, our experiences. Um, the one that was the, the most pronounced, <laughs> but really all of them, that feeling of not being pregnant happened every mm -hmm. time, which, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, she just knew, like, yeah. you know, and, and sort you know, multiple miscarriages is very rare. Uh, so we still don't have answers. We still don't know what's going on. And then you go to doctors and one fertility doctor that we spent six months waiting to see science just doesn't know i'm sorry we just don't have any answers for you if you, you're not interested in doing um you know uh ivf then i just there's nothing i can do for you i'm sorry 
and we're just like, so are we just going to keep having miscarriages and like no answers, right? Mm-hmm. And we we had a really good meeting with a doctor who was like, well, it could be these twenty things, it could be these twenty things, and we're going to yeah. figure it out, right? So, yeah. um, but the the six or seven week old not knowing what to do with what is very clearly a human being, mm-hmm. I think is a situation that you never expect yourself to be in because you don't know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, so how to say this grace handle that? Like if you're in that situation where we're like, I mean, I'm sorry to be crass, but do mm-hmm. we flush the child down the toilet? Do we have a funeral? Do we, you, you're not prepared for that moment, just like you said. Like, right. I, oh my God, I'm going to have to deliver the baby and then what are we going to do? Like, it's a, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a very difficult, confusing moment. So how do you use your organization through your own experience to handle that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember having that exact thought, like I was in labor with Sayla and I sat up in my bed and looked at my mom mm-hmm. and said, so are we supposed to have a funeral? Like, what do we do? Um, And so a lot of what we do as we support families who have been there is to just share our own experience and share um, that what you're thinking and the thoughts that you're having are completely normal because the, the things that you think you're thinking well, these are really not thoughts that I should be having in a moment like this. Like, like what I did I do? <laughs> what if, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, am I allowed to have a funeral? Just things that like, nobody knew this baby. Do we have a funeral or do we just kind of go on our way and again, act like nothing happened? Um, so it's, it's more of kind of personally coming alongside these families that we're connected with. Um, Cause it's, most of the time when we connect with a family personally, it's because another person has reached out to us um, and connected us to them. Um, So it's just a lot of open sharing about our experience and just being open and willing and providing a safe space for them to ask those questions, um, no matter how crass or because you you do you think a lot of things and your your mind goes a lot of different places and it's totally normal. Um, so just trying to validate and to support that. And then with the hospitals, we don't always connect with the families who receive our resources in the hospitals, and that's completely okay. We always offer. Um, I put a card in there with our contact information, and some families have reached out, um, but most don't, and that's okay. Um, but it's more of just being available and to walk that road and to answer those questions that you don't feel like you can ask anyone else. Yeah. So what about your experience led you to start the organization? Was it, I mean, tell us about the weeks after Mm -hmm. and then how did that lead to Sailor's Grace Ministries? Yeah, um, I remember we didn't spend that much time in the hospital. Um, like I said, we delivered Sayla the night before school started. So my oldest was going into first grade. And so I felt very conflicted. Like I want to and need to spend this time here at the hospital with my daughter because these are the only moments that I will ever have with her. But I also have kids at home who need me too. Um, 
we weren't able to get my son on the bus for his first day of first grade. And so our doctor allowed us to um, leave a little bit early from the hospital so that we could be home when he got off the bus. Um, but we were, when we were in the hospital, we had access to a cuddle cot, um, which is a bedside cooling device that um, it has a cooling pad that they can lay the baby on that will kind of slow those processes of death and will allow the baby to stay bedside and in the room with you um, for as long as you need. So we had that. And so Sayla stayed in our room with us the entire time that we were there. So we had 24 hours with her. Um, Had we not had access to that, she would have had to have gone back and forth to the morgue um, or she would have had her little body packed with ice packs, which in my opinion is not providing her with that much dignity. So, um, can I ask, um, I I think if you're not, if you've not experienced this, you'd, you'd hear that and you go, you want to stay in the room with the baby? Like, Mm -hmm. what's that about? What, what, why did you feel that need? What, what need did that fulfill for you both at that time? Yeah. In my, once we delivered her, I did not see her as anything else other than my daughter. Like, yes, she had passed and yes, she had died. And that was, um, but it was, it's only, I think, looking back that I see like, yeah, that was, she did look a little, a little rough. Um, but it was just the fact that I only had that time with her. I only had that time with her to say goodbye, to say hello, to make a lifetime of memories with her, to be able to hold her, to be able to dress her, to be able to read her a story. Um, Her siblings were able to come and to meet her. So we were trying to do all of the things that you expect to have a lifetime to be able to do with your kids. Um, And so it wasn't even a thought in my mind that it should be any other way that she should be there with us. And I remember the heart, I think the hardest moment of being in the hospital was when we, when we had to make the decision to tell our nurse that we were ready for her to leave us um, because that was it. There was, there were no more opportunities. So it, it did seem like, if I had not personally ever been in that situation, I would probably think, yeah, that's really weird that you want to hold your baby that's died. Like, I don't know about that, but um, it it wasn't even a thought. And our friends even came and they held her. And that meant so much to me as a mom that they would come and they would spend those moments and treat Sela the same way they treated all the rest of our children that they were able to come and see in the hospital. Um, and having that cuddle cot, it's like I said, it slows down those processes. So her body stayed intact and looked a little better, um, than it would have had we not had that access there. And so your organization helps provide maternity awards with those or? Yes, that's a part of what we do. And that's actually the very first thing that we did, which... (laughs) Um, it's shocking to me that more hospitals don't have these, but most hospitals obtain these through private donations from families like ours who want to do something to honor their children. Um, and we, 
like I said, we had that one. And when we got home, we were told that we, that at the hospital, there were four losses in 48 hours and they only had one cuddle cot and we had that cuddle cot. So I knew there were three other families who did not get the same experience that we got. Um, So I was, we had been home for a couple of days and I tell people all the time, like when you become pregnant, you become a mom, like you, like that, those maternal instincts kick in. And when your baby dies, those don't go away. It's just a different way that um, you just have to do things in a different way. So I'm raising Sayla in a very different way. So I still felt that need to do things. And so we were sitting at the gas station and I thought, how expensive could something like this be? Like, is it even possible that we could don't like raise money and donate one? And so I looked it up and it was only like $3,000, which blew my mind because I was like, that's like a drop in the bucket on some other hospital equipment. Uh, so I pitched it to my husband. He's like, yeah, well, let's, let's do it. Let's try. And so I thought, you know, by August, by her first birthday, I would like to have this done. And I think it was October, November after she was born, we had raised enough money um, plus some to be able to donate our first kettle cot. And we were actually able to donate that to Community Hospital North so that they had a second um, unit available for families. And the same day that we donated that, they actually were able to send their existing kettle cot to another network hospital because another family needed it. And then they had the one that we had donated in Sayla's honor. So um, yeah, we worked to donate those to hospitals um, so that families have that time with their babies. So I think the the most awkward part has been our three and a half year old because she doesn't really get it, mm-hmm. but she kind of gets it. She knows that she has brothers and sisters in heaven. And she understands, but she doesn't understand. And I don't know, we've probably felt it through the best way that we can, just like you did. Mm-hmm. How did you talk about this with your kids? How have you heard other parents talk it through it with their kids of varying ages? What advice do you have for us, <laughs> but other yeah. parents? Yeah, uh, that was one of the first questions that I asked when we were in the hospital um, because our daughter, Charlotte, she was, gosh, she was maybe three or four at the time when Sayla died. Um, And she was convinced the entire pregnancy that it was her baby sister. Like we didn't, we decided we were going to wait to find out. Um, We'd had, we had boys and we had girls, so we had everything we needed. So why not just wait? Um, And so when we found out it was a little girl that like, I looked at my husband, I said, that's Charlotte's baby sister. Like, and the guilt I felt as a parent even though there was nothing that I could have done differently that she wasn't going to have her baby sister now that she was supposed to have. Um, So I remember we were the palliative care nurse. She was a saint. I still talk to her today. Um, She's the most wonderful human being I've ever met. Um, I remember her sitting on my bed and I looked at her and I said, how do I tell my kids this? Um, Because we have to tell them. They, it was very clear and obvious that mom was pregnant. They were involved. Um, the Saturday night before, we'd actually had Charlotte's birthday party. And the kids were stalling to go to bed like kids do. And so they were all telling the baby goodnight. And um, so, like, 
all of them. And Charlotte kissed my belly and tucked her baby in. And then they all went to bed. And it was that next Monday that we found out that Sayla had died. So um, that that's a very special moment that I'm really, really glad that they had that opportunity. And I think it was, um, I am very positive that that was a moment that God gave my kids to be able to kind of say their goodbyes to their sister. Um, but she looked at me and she said, you just have to be, you have to kind of follow their lead. Um, my oldest was going into first grade, like I said, so he, walking into the hospital, he knew that we weren't supposed to be there yet. Um, he knew that the fact that we were there meant that there was probably something not right. He picked up on that right away. Um, and so I said, what do we do? We've got this baby in our room and I don't want to traumatize my children. Like, I don't want them <laughs> to like go the rest of their lives and have this huge trauma around this. I want this to be a good experience for them. So she said, you just have to follow their lead. You have to be uh, direct, use very clear language. Don't use ambiguous terms like, oh, we lost the baby because in their minds you lose something and then you find it. Um, one of actually one of our friends told their kids that we lost the baby and they were on a walk one day and she said, he looked up at me and said, well, did they ever find their baby? So it's, you just have to be very clear and very black and white. And, um, so she said, when, when they get here, we will have Sayla not in the room with you. That was the only time that she left the room, um, so that they can make the choice as to what they are comfortable with. Um, so we brought the kids in, Sayla wasn't there. Um, we sat him down. My husband told them what had happened. And then he just asked them, do you, do you want to see her? My oldest did not. He's the typical firstborn. He's more quiet. He observes a lot. So he sat back in the dad's lounge that they had in the in the room and just as the firstborn, yes, and Reagan's this way too. You must be stoic. You're part British. Uh-huh. You must show no boat. Yes. Jennifer's <laughs> one as well. Yes. Yep, that's him. I'm a second born middle child, so um oh boy. I'm not a firstborn. <laughs> So he just kind of sat back and observed our second Hudson. He was all about it. He wanted to hold her. He wanted to see her. Um, We have incredible pictures of him with his sister. Charlotte wasn't sure. Um, She, she would look at her and I was really, really hoping that she would hold her. And right before they left for, to go home for the night, she did ask to hold her. Um, And so I'm, I'm really glad she had that moment with her, uh, her little sister. Um, and then my youngest was about 18 months old at the time. So he was doing handstands and eating tacos in the hospital room and had <laughs> no earthly idea what was happening. So we kind of, we had the spectrum of it. Um, and it was really once we got home that we had to have more of those hard conversations. Um, it was, well, where's her body? What did you do with her? Like, where did she go? And we had, I had to explain cremation to my first grader. And I'm like, how do you explain that without scarring them for life? Um, yeah. Uh, and did, did you, I mean, how I did like, um, I think I might've Googled a little bit, like how, how do I do kid friendly cremation dogs, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's a book out there. I'm sure you're going to have, <laughs> Um, I think I ended up telling him they just took her body into a really hot room and it turned to ash. And 
he was okay with that. And he looked at me and said, okay. And then he went and played. Um, and then my Hudson, our second, he was, we told him that her body would come back to us in a box. And he was convinced that um, she was going to be dropped on our doorstep one day, like an Amazon package. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it was just all about being very direct and very clear with them. Like, yes, she did die. Um, we had questions like, well, then do all babies die? And it's like, well, did, did you die? Well, you didn't <laughs> die. It just, like, it happens sometimes. And um, there's nothing that anybody did wrong. And we had some, we had some really good books that talk about death and the death of a sibling specifically that were given to us that we read to them and that they still ask to read today. One of them was we were going to have a baby, but we had an angel instead. And it just kind of goes through. It was really similar to our situation. Like you saw that mommy was pregnant and now she's not and mommy's sad. And so kind of going through all the things that they, that they observe in the house because they're there and they're observing your grief. Um, And then the other one was Ethan's butterflies. Just, it was a more, more symbolic, um, but just talking about how they're always there. And then later um, our oldest did, we did send him to see a counselor because he was, like I said, more aware of just things that were happening. And she did a book called the invisible string with him and just how you're still connected. So we had lots of resources like that. Um, But it was also super important that we had open dialogue with them and we're just willing to answer their questions and we're willing to show them that yes, mommy and daddy are really, really sad right now. And this is why. Um, And it's, I feel, I feel like they've come out in a pretty healthy spot. I mean, we're four years down the road and um, they love their sister. They talk about their sister. They know that she's died. They, I do email their teachers at the beginning of the year to give them a heads up that, Hey, you might hear these conversations and this is why. Um, so sale is very much a part of our family and, um, they talk about her like she's still here, which some people get a little weirded out by, but <laughs> it's their sister. <laughs> so. Um, uh, what else does Salos Grace do? Uh, you know, before, while we start wrapping it up here, um, and Jennifer, I promise I will ask you, uh, more questions. Uh, I just very engrossed in Emma's story. You should do a podcast, Emma. I think you're very natural at this. <laughs> I've been told to write a book, do a podcast, do something, maybe someday when my kids are a little older. Yeah, right. Uh, do you, ho- do you homeschool too? Oh no, no okay. sir. I used to teach special education. Um, I say I could teach everybody else's kids, but I could not teach my own. <laughs> okay. Usually, did it though. Her story is like just—I don't know. It well, she's takes, good at it. She's very good at telling the story. You know, um, you. And that was what it was inspiring for everything. For yeah, me too. Or, organizing the thoughts. Um, yeah. So, Sela's Grace, uh, tell us just briefly how that got started and you know, what else do you do and how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like I said, that we founded all of this in honor of our daughter, um, just so that families knew that they weren't alone in this, that someone sees them, someone understands them, um, and that their, their babies are, are known and remembered and that they're just a very, they're treasured is what we tell people all the time. And, so on top of the the cuddle cots that we donate to hospitals, we also put together, um, we call them Sela boxes, they're bereavement care packages that we donate to hospitals. And then also we send them to individuals outside of the hospital. The boxes that go to the hospitals, 
um, contain a journal and a handmade hat and blanket. And then we put a pen in there and some forget me not seeds, just things that help them to make some of those memories. Um, the biggest thing that I wanted to, to have in there was the handmade hat and blanket because that was something that was given to us in the hospital. Um, we went there obviously not knowing that we were going to have a baby. Um, and so we didn't have anything. We had nothing for her that you would think to take to the hospital with you. So um, having that blanket and something that I actually was able to use with her to care for her uh, and that I was able to take home with me was super important. So we tried to think of things that were helpful to us in those moments to put in these boxes. And then I also put in a handwritten letter to the mom. I'm working with my husband to get one to dad in there. So that's <laughs> a little bit of a work in progress because I think dads get forgotten pretty often in this process. Um, yeah, I feel a little they, weird saying like we had a miscarriage because I didn't have a miscarriage, yeah. but right, you know, yeah, you're but, still you're still there with yeah, it's still, feelings. It's, still part it's just of your story too, yeah, it's but, not as not as intense though. Yes, so um, we put that in there just so that again they they know that they're not alone. And then the ones that go um, to families outside of the hospital, we're able to personalize those a little bit more. Um, so if they if they named their baby, um, we make a necklace with the baby's name on it. That's something that someone did for me that was super meaningful. Um, and then we put um, a willow tree angel in there, and then the journal. Um, some of some of the things in the hospital and the individual boxes are are similar, but we don't include the blanket in the individual ones because they're usually getting those once they've gone home. Um, so really, they were all just things that were helpful to us. Um, as we kind of started this journey out and then we put our contact information in there. So people are always free to contact us through Facebook. Um, we're working on a website. So that's, um, that was one of our 2022 goals for the organization. So hopefully by the end of the year, that will be up and going, but we do have a Facebook page. It's, um, Sailor's Grace Ministries. And we're also on Instagram as well. So do you, you know, uh, what about people like my wife and I who, who had, you know, lost a child a lot earlier? I, I would guess that's maybe more common than your story. I don't know. Um, it is. I mean, I the statistics so. are, are that one in four pregnancies are going, will end in uh, miscarriage or stillbirth. Um, stillbirth is a little less common than, um, than a miscarriage. Stillbirth is technically after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Um, but yeah, still miscarriage is way more common. Um, it's a way more common story that women and families do have. So do you, do you have like groups or, uh, any kind of community that you're, that you build that, you know, if somebody's listening maybe outside of the area that has experienced it in the past, or, you know, if they want to mm -hmm. give back or maybe they just haven't faced what happened yet. I mean, Mm -hmm. how can people engage with you? I'm sure there's a lot of people listening going, I want my wife or I want to talk to Emma, but that's <laughs> probably, <laughs> and I'm sure you would, you seem like the kind of person that would take those direct messages, but yeah, you know, and I absolutely do. I do it all the time. And I think that's my favorite part. That sounds really weird to say that that's my favorite part, but I love being able to talk to other moms. Um, and my husband, when I ask him to, we'll talk to other dads too. <laughs> So he's more than willing, but I love being an open book and, and just sharing our experience and being able to help somebody else, um, to kind of work through their experience as well. But we don't 
currently have groups like large groups, but there are other organizations that we um, that we know of and that we connect with that we like to refer people to. Um, the Scotty Michael Foundation is another organization in the local indie area. Um, they have a coffee group that meets um, at the well in Fishers once a month. And I believe they also have one in Fort Wayne that just started. And then we're connected with lots of other um, like hospital-based support groups. Um, that was the first place that I got my experience. Um, Riverview Hospital, their bereavement coordinator is amazing. Um, her name's Dee Dee Flaherty. I didn't even deliver at Riverview. And she and that entire group just welcomed me into kind of their circle. And those moms are some people that I talk to way more than the once a month support group meetings. Um, and there's moms in these groups that are 10 years down the road. There are moms that are like 10 days down the road. So you get the whole experience. So right now we refer out. We'd love to be able to do that in the future to do the the more like group meetup. But honestly, my favorite way to connect with with moms and with families is just one-on-one and just having those conversations and let's go meet for coffee. <laughs> So we we air on college and uh, high school radio stations and uh, have a lot of future moms out there. And, uh, you know, maybe some of our, our podcast audience are going to have kids. Uh, how, how, do, how do I put this? You find yourself in this situation. What advice would you give them? What should they do? Like, what's what's the uh, break glass break glass in case of emergency uh, <laughs> thing that you know? I, do this. Contact this person. I I don't know. Like, I we didn't have that. It just sort of mm-hmm. now we're like you know okay. Well, this is what it is. But the first two times it was like I don't know what to do. So prepare them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the best, the best thing that I tell people to do is first know that you're not alone in what you're experiencing. Um, There are so many other people out there who have experienced it and don't, don't try to walk it alone um, because it's really hard to do. And I try, I tried to do that initially. Um, I didn't think that I needed to reach out to anybody. I didn't think that I needed to talk to anybody. I didn't think anybody would understand. Um, and it wasn't until I did reach out and tell people, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. And hey, I need help to get through this because I don't even know how to do this. Um, that I think would be my my best piece of advice is, is to reach out to someone or just say, Hey, this is what I'm struggling with. And more than likely, if you say something, somebody is going to reach out to you because that's what somebody did for them. Um, and like I said, I'm more than happy to be, to be that person for people, whether I know you or whether I don't know you, it doesn't matter to me because it's that important to me that people know that, uh, they're not alone in this journey and that they don't have to walk this road alone. I, I would just say, you know, ask your moms and sisters and grandmas and you, <laughs> you what, what has been surprising in this process is to find out how many there are in all of our families, but nobody mm-hmm. ever talked about it because yep. our mom's generation and grandma's generation, it was not a, you know, my, my grandparents um, on my mom's side, actually Patrick, 
very much a similar story to Selah. Mm-hmm. Um, very late uh, miscarriage, has a grave marker, you know, like very much a part of my mom's family, you know, but mm-hmm. then other places it's not not that way. Uh, Jennifer, give us, you know, if you are interested in community, then Jennifer is putting on a great event. Please share a little bit more about that event. What's your elevator pitch? <laughs> I think the the similarities to the community that Emma describes, needing that community is exactly what musicians know. And that's the reason we do music. And we love sharing that. So it, it just feels so in tandem to put music to this journey. Um, and no matter where they are on that journey, it literally could be any reason you're in the audience. We will never know if you have been an, a person who has experienced a loss or know someone who will. We don't know if two weeks from now you're going to have a coworker that does. And all of a sudden you have information that, that may help them or you can not be as awkward when they share that with you. I don't know how it will impact someone and I can't predict that. Um, I want to just say something a little bit further back, but you said something about, I, I don't want to go to an event like this if, if all I'm going to do is cry. Yeah, I, I know that's a very real possibility. Um, I also know that there could be somebody sitting right beside you who notices you crying and holds your hand, you know, and gives you the space to do what you need to do and grieve the way that you need to. Um, we're, we're partnered here with uh, Meridian Street United Methodist Church. That's the place that's hosting us for this concert. And their uh, pastoral staff is, is planning to be there that evening in their very down-the-hall chapel. So we're anticipating people coming in and walking out. And if that's what it needs to be, and it needs to be I walk out to my car, I walk home and, and leave, or if it's just I walk down the hallway and I have a moment to myself, or I have someone who would like to speak with me or pray with me, whatever it is they want, um, I think we're just hoping it's it's whatever it needs to be for whoever needs to sit there. And if we can get the word out to, to just the Indianapolis community at large, um, it's going to be an interesting evening, something we've never quite done before, but hopefully completely worthwhile. All right. Well, thank you so much to Emma Ping of Sailor's Grace's Ministry and Jennifer Kitzmiller, Indianapolis Arts Choral. Is it choral or choral? It's choral. The E at the end makes it choral. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm from Indiana. You know where I grew up. So, you know, I didn't get the good education like you Avon people. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much for both of you being here. I really do appreciate, uh, Emma, you sharing your story and Jennifer for you reaching out and, uh, helping to put this together. Um, this is, this is the main point of what this show and what We Are Libertarians and the Chris Spangle Show has always been about. You're going to go through tough times. You've got to reach out. You've got to build community, get into community, and realize you're not a weird freak. Um, <laughs> and just be open and honest with what you're going through. And, you know, if you've been carrying something like this uh, for a long time, and usually if you, 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 you know, Emma, Jennifer, you know this too. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. That's when you know you're not fine. So, yeah, eventually you're not fine. <laughs> you're not fine. Um, so, you know, really appreciate you you both coming on to talk about this. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you so much. If you got something out of this, please share with your friends and family. And we really do appreciate you listening to The Chris Spangle Show. And we will see you again soon. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.